Kimberly Juan will read the scripture passage to precede the sermon. The scripture reading is taken from Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Thank you, Kimberly. This summer we've been looking at the New Testament, at Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. This is a group of churches in what is today central Turkey that Paul had planted. Uh, his habit was to go to the major towns in any region, preach, gather together those people who responded, train them, turn them into a Christian church, and then move on. But he'd also keep in touch with them through letters. And uh, much of the New Testament are the letters of Paul to the churches that he had planted. And we've seen, uh, and, Gen- and Galatians, by the way, is probably the first and earliest writing in the New Testament. We've seen that at the beginning of the Christian church, in the churches that Paul had planted, there was a controversy. There was a problem. And you see it right here in verse 12. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. It seems that in the early church, there were Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Gentiles are everybody who's not Jewish. And of course, the church grew out of Israel, out of Judaism. Jesus was Jewish and the apostles were Jewish. And so when Paul took the gospel to the Gentile world, to the Roman world, what seems to have happened is that people would come after him, Jewish Christians, and they would say to the new Gentile Christians, To be a real Christian, you've got to also become Jewish. You've got to follow all the law of Moses. You've got to circumcise your children and all the rituals and habits of Israel. That's real Christianity. And Paul, throughout this letter, has said no. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else. No rituals, no patterns, no habits, no special clothing, no circumcision, nothing else is necessary. Jesus Christ alone. That's the gospel. Don't let go of it. And in fact, the letter to the Galatians is the great letter of Christian freedom. If you want to discover what Christian freedom is all about, this is where you go. And hopefully, this is what we've been learning over the summer. Here we come to the end of the letter. This is the final coda on the letter, the final thing that that Paul has to say, and in many ways is a summary. But before we look at that, I just want to note a little oddity. Notice in verse 11, see what he says. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Now people have debated what Paul means here. 
it was the practice back then because uh, most people didn't go to school. Most people were illiterate. Most people could not read and write. It was the practice that if you were going to communicate, if you were going to have a letter written, you'd go to a professional scribe whose job it was to transcribe what you said, and you'd just basically speak to him and he would write it down. And that was the practice among uneducated people. Now we know that Paul was educated and we know that he could write. So what does he mean here? And most people think that what he's saying is the rest of this letter has been written by a professional scribe and I'm just adding this little coda, this sort of summary in my own hand at the end. So that this is him just being personal. Just like a personal coda or personal summary at the end of a dictated traditional letter. Of course, a traditional a professional scribe would have had a very compact and professional writing compared with Paul. However, um, in the Eastern Church, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they look at this a little differently. They interpret these words as saying something along the lines of, note how heavily I have pressed upon the pen in writing this. Meaning, notice how heavily I underline these words to you that what Paul is doing here, that Paul has actually written the whole letter, and he's writing this last part in a way that brings emphasis, that underlines his point, that essentially says the same thing, that this is the summary, this is the essence, this is where you should pay attention to what I've got to say. Either way, and you'll have you'll, you'll hear debates about it, the point is, this is the finale. This is the essence. This is the summary. So let's look at it. Verse 12. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. Those who want to impress people, he's talking about uh, pr- probably Jewish Christians, and he's talking about them emphasizing the external religion that they're used to. Rituals, patterns of behavior, special clothing, special diet, circumcising children. And he's saying that that is a negative. It has a bad motive. Because what it seeks to do is to glorify oneself and one's practice of religion, rather than to respond to God's love and seek to glorify him. It's external, peripheral stuff, rather than internal, hard stuff, a real relationship. And how are they doing it? By means of the flesh. Now, we looked at this before. The flesh, the Greek word sake, is not um, a duality saying the flesh, the physical body, versus the spiritual body. Unfortunately, in history, oftentimes it's been interpreted that way. And there is a Christian tendency to emphasize the spiritual rather than the physical. So that physical, material things are bad. You know, eating and drinking and uh, sports and exercise and sexual desire and everything associated with the body is bad, the flesh and you should really be about spiritual stuff. In fact, that, that became such an emphasis that um, before the Protestant Reformation, you had a, a, a big division in society. You had the spiritual people, 
the priests and the monks and the nuns, and they were like the really good people doing God's work, praying and worshiping and doing all that stuff. And then you had the peasants and the soldiers and the merchants, and they were distasteful. They were materialistic. They were involved in work. Work was a bad thing. Only slaves do work. One of the great benefits of the Protestant Reformation was to get rid of that distinction. And the reformers, Martin Luther and Calvin, noticed that God worked in creation before he rested. And that Jesus worked. He was a carpenter. And this is not a distinction or a duality between flesh and spirit, but it's rather a duality between the sinful human nature, body, spirit, heart, and soul, everything in us that is not centered on God, and the new nature, the new man, the new Adam, the new creation, a new way of life, body, heart, mind, soul, centered on God. And that's the real issue here. And so Paul is saying, don't let external stuff impressing other people, don't let external stuff become what you think Christianity is all about. Rather, it is an internal, inward movement. It is about your relationship with God, with Christ. It is about worship and prayer. It is about your inward orientation, your whole life's orientation to God. And Paul gives a test here. Notice how he continues in verse 14. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. What is Paul saying there? Christians don't often talk about this, but we worship a criminal. Jesus Christ was a tragic and horrific shame. He died on a cross. He died publicly. He was lifted up on a cross and died in the, one of the most painful ways it's conceivable to imagine. Uh, dying. Nailed and left to die. And it was humiliating. He was naked up there. You know, a career friend of mine in, uh, in Manhattan pointed out to me that in Korean culture, shame is a big issue, and public shame is the worst thing. And that for certainly him and his family, the astonishing thing about Jesus was he was willing to public humiliate himself, naked, hung up in agony, in order to save this man and his family. That the willingness to be shameful was the aspect of Christ that responded, he responded to most. Because Jesus was a great shame, a publicly executed criminal, killed in the worst way that the inventive Roman people could come up with. And if you want to be about externals, if you want to point to something that makes you significant and valuable, the last thing you want to point to is a criminal hung to die on a cross. 
The only way that it is possible to redeem that horror, that humiliation, that pain, is to recognize that he did it for you and for me. That it was a personal sacrifice on his behalf, an act of love. And only when you feel that, when you see him there for you personally, is the cross redeemed and becomes something that is so beautiful that it melts a hardened, sinful human heart. And of course, as soon as we recognize that, we recognize that the shame is actually our shame. He went on the cross in our place. He suffered what we deserved because of who we are, which is shameful. There is an offense in that to anybody who is self-righteous, to anybody who is proud, to everyone who wants to impress the next-door neighbor. Because the cross says to Christians, you've got nothing to be proud about. He bore your shame. Your self-righteousness is based on nothing, unless it's based on him. Your reputation is worthless. And that is a bitter pill to swallow for many people. There is a shame, there is an offense to the gospel. And anyone who is about externals feels it and avoids it. That's what Paul is saying here. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Persecuted for following a uh, a condemned criminal. And so this is the first point that we can apply to ourselves. I invite you to apply to yourself. When you look at your Christian life, is it primarily internal or external? Do you focus more on outward behavior and the behavior of others? their habits, the way they dress, the way they behave, the way their children behave? Or are you primarily focused when you come to church on your personal experience of God? That transcendent experience of God's beauty and the extraordinary fact that he would love a sinful person like you. Paul is saying that's the only reason to come to church. It can never be about externals. It needs to be always focused on Jesus Christ alone. That's his entire point, the entire gospel. Don't let external things, outward things, things that are peripheral, get in your way of receiving the central message. You know, the very center of our church, the Lord's table. This is not, does not look like a feast. If you went to a restaurant and they put this in front of you, you would not be impressed. So why do we celebrate and worship? Because that's the body of Christ. That is the blood of Christ. That is the crucifixion right there, made beautiful, because we're receiving it as a sacrifice for us. Spiritual food. New life. What you feel... And how you experience the Lord's Supper is a very potent measure of your Christian life. 
Do you just get through it? Do you worry about the taste of the bread? Do you worry about the taste of the wine? Or does your whole being rejoice? Do you feel closer to God? Do you recognize that this is the wedding feast of the Lamb? Your only hope, the basis of your relationship with God. Verse 14. May I, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul's gospel is Jesus Christ alone. His life, his death alone. Not Paul's. Not Paul's life, his reputation, or what he did. Paul is saying here, his life has died with Jesus. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Who I am, my reputation, my self-righteousness and worth is irrelevant now. It's all about Jesus and the fact that he went to the cross for me. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. So remember, we're in the summary verses of Galatians. This is Paul summing it all up. And right here in 14 and 15, you have the summary of the whole letter. So much so that this is the part of Galatians that inspired a German monk, Martin Luther, to stand up and challenge all of Christendom and say, it's all about Jesus, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. This is what Martin Luther said. Christ did not only die in our place, but lived a perfect life in our place. Therefore, we do not simply get forgiveness from, excuse me, therefore, we do not simply get forgiveness for sins from Christ, but also complete acceptance. His perfect past and record now in God's sight, becomes ours. And Luther points out, this is an absolutely unique teaching in the world. What is he saying? It's not just that Jesus dies and pays for our sins and then we go in our merry way, trying to do the right thing, trying to live a good life, trying to please God. We receive from Christ not only his death, but his life, the perfect life that he lived. That's why we get to call ourselves Christians. That's why we get to call God Father. That's why we're in the family forever. When God looks at us, he does not look at our life. He looks at the life that Jesus led. And that's why there is now no condemnation. That's why we have to put to death not only our sins, but our old way of living to, being part, to begin to participate in this new creation, this new way of living, the new Adam. It's what born again means. All the words in the Bible about a new spiritual life, a new nature, they all come from this idea that we receive Christ's life, his record. There is an exchange on the cross. Our life for his, his life 
for us. And what does that mean? Luther goes on. So now, we may certainly think, although I still sin, I don't despair, because Christ lives, who is both my righteousness and my eternal life. In that righteousness, concerning my Christ's life, I have no sin, no fear, no guilty conscience, no fear of death. I am indeed a sinner in this life, or in mine, and in my own righteousness, but I have another life, another righteousness above this life, which is in Christ. The Son of God, who knows no sin or death, but is eternal righteousness and eternal life. We have another life, above the life we live, that is now our record, that is now available to us as Christians to live in. Every time you repent of your old way of life and turn, which is what repentance means, to God and the new life we have in Christ, that life becomes more real to you, more complete. And the day that you and I die, what will be left is that new life. The old will finally die forever. And so living in this new life is what Christian growth is all about. That's what it means to grow up as a Christian. To let go of the old, the life that is going to die, the life that we create for ourselves, that we put all our time and attention into, so much of our time and attention, not all. But the life that's going to live forever, the immortal life, the eternal life, is the life based on Jesus. And that will last. And everything that we do in his name, in that life, will be eternal, will be of eternal significance. That's the difference. Some other religions, this is Luther, some other religions teach that God will forgive your failures to produce a good moral record, but no other religion claims that God actually provides an absolutely perfect record to you, whereby he regards you as absolutely holy and acceptable and flawless. Other religions say you give God a righteous record, then he will owe you. But the gospel says God, through Jesus Christ, gives you a perfect record, and then you owe him. Our life for his, put to death on the cross, his life for us, the exchange. So what does that mean in practice? Great theology, by the way. Much of Protestant theology is based on these ideas. But what does it mean to you and I right now, this Sunday morning? How can you apply this to your own life, to your own spiritual growth? Luther says the trick is to bring this truth to bear continuously to ourselves and to each other. In fact, that is what a Christian church is. The community that is saying this to each other, that is remembering this together, that is celebrating this together. This is how Luther puts it. Remember, Luther was a monk. He was all about prayer. 
His stuff on prayer is remarkable and wonderful. This is what he says about prayer, by the way. Learn how to speak to one's own heart. That's the essence. When the law creeps into your conscience, learn to use arguments of the gospel against it. Say, for example, O law, trouble me not, for I will not allow you to reign in my heart and conscience, for they are the seat and temple of Christ, the Son of God, who is the King of righteousness and peace, and my most sweet Savior and mediator. Then he, or I, shall keep my conscience joyful and quiet in the sound and pure doctrine of the gospel. Learn to speak to one's own heart. That is the essence of spiritual growth. So how do you do that? The best example are the Psalms in the Bible. Because if you look at the Psalms, if you particularly if you pray through the Psalms, they are a constant argument, a constant preaching to one's own heart. Let me give you an example. Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my innermost being. Praise his holy name. Just do it, soul. Stop arguing. Start praising. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Why are you going to stop praising soul? Why are you going to start worshiping God? Because remember what God has done. And forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now the Psalms do this in many different ways. If you read through them, there are many different situations they address. But one truth runs all the way through them. They are real prayers based on a real relationship with God dealing with the real problem of the sin inside. They are honest. They don't gloss over things. They bring arguments to God. They challenge God. They argue about pain and suffering. They shake their fist at God. They show you what real prayer looks like. They show you how to remind yourself, your mind, your body, your heart, and your soul, just what God has done for you. It's preaching to yourself. When all the world says you're worthless, when nobody loves you, when you get rejected, when you just got fired, when your house burns down, when somebody tells you you got cancer, when you are dealing with problems with your children, when you are overwhelmed, when everything in the world says... You're worthless. Your life means nothing. Soon you're going to die. You remind yourself of the gospel. That Christ died for you on the cross. That you are more precious than the whole world. That you are held in God's hands for all eternity. That he wants you to be part of his family. That he would give up anything even himself, even his own son, Jesus, to make sure you were not lost. 
And if you know that deep down inside, that's where peace comes from. Because no longer will you be defined by the world. You will be defined by God and his promises. Spiritual growth is just that. The ongoing process of reminding yourself and teaching yourself so that it goes down deep and becomes a foundation of who you are. That you are not an accident. You are not worthless. You are beloved. That you are cherished. That you are more valuable than anything else in the world. That's the gospel. By the way, I just want to point out something that is interesting. Verse 16. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. I never noticed this before. I always had a problem preaching through Psalms, because some of them are very straightforward. But others, they're all about Israel, and they're about Jerusalem, and they're about the specific problems of Israel. And I, I would always, when I got to such a psalm, I would think, is this really mine to pray? Or does this belong to the Jewish people and to Israel? Well, notice what Paul says here. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, his rule, sorry, this rule, he's talking to Christians, to the Israel of God, the church of God, the people of God. Everything in the Old Testament is about God's relationship to his people. Starts with Israel, but with Jesus continues in Christianity so that we are his holy nation, a royal priesthood, the family of God. And so everything in the Psalms is about us, is about you and me. And you can use to remind yourself who you really are. I'm going to end here with a final thought. And uh, forgive me if this is self-indulgent. This really resonated with me because I'm a professional pastor but take it with a pinch of salt. You know, pastors are sinners too. Look how Paul ends his letter. From now on, let, lo- let no one cause me any. Tr- let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. What is he saying there? Well, remember the whole point of the letter is people coming in to the church that Paul planted and saying, you need to be circumcised. You have to have this mark made on your body, this scar, to be a real Christian. Don't listen to what Paul said. This is real Christianity. He might have planted the church, but we're telling you the real truth. This is what it really looks like. And so what is Paul saying? Don't pay attention to those people. Those people have not done anything. I was the one that went out into the world and planted your church. I was the one that brought the gospel to you. The scars that Paul had, he talks about in another letter, his letter to the Corinthian church, and he says this, Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, and in danger at sea. 
and in danger from false believers. Paul, literally on his body, bore the scars of working to expand the gospel. He went out into the world at personal risk and personal damage to bring the gospel to people who had not heard it. And so what he's saying here is, when other people come along and, and bring peripheral or external or additional things, remember who expanded the gospel, who brought the gospel to you. Don't let trivialities get in the way of you hearing the gospel or following the gospel. Don't let people who've done nothing really tell you what the gospel is when I've already told you who went out into the world and planted your church and got beat up for it and shipwrecked for it. Give that some credibility. Now, why is this self-indulgent? Because I'm a professional pastor. 60% of all the pastors in America don't retire as pastors. For one reason or other, they they get kicked out of the church. Sometimes it's because they're very wicked, and many times it's because somebody has had a disagreement. All the the people that I started ministry with in in, uh, Manhattan are gone pretty much. I think there's three of them left. All the pastors that I knew personally at seminary are no longer pastors. Many of the pastors in New Jersey have transitioned, have been, for one reason or other, have gone out of ministry. And many of you, many of our leaders in this church have experienced blow-ups in churches, dysfunctions in churches, have been kicked out for one way or another, or have suffered persecution in the churches. It happens to everyone. It happens to leaders in our church, unfortunately, who pour their heart into ministry, and start ministries or lead ministries and start small groups. And because of some disagreement over something completely trivial, become disenchanted and soured. It happens to members who join this church because they want to be loved and part of something, and because of some social um, dysfunction or personality issue, they are always treated as outsiders. It happens to mothers who come to this church and get grief about one of their kids when just getting them out of bed in the morning and getting them to church was like climbing Everest. It happens to fathers who are challenged because they don't do enough for the church when they are running so hard at work and as a father and as a husband that they've barely got the energy to talk to their wife when they come home. There are things in our life that are not very pretty. There are things that we don't do or can't do, things that we forget to do. We are all sinful. But let's never forget the main thing. The main thing is that Jesus Christ is our Lord. Don't let peripheral things, secondary things, external things become a source of division between us. Theology is beautiful. But I've seen people who agree 99% and then will split out over the 1%. When I was at uh, a Redeemer in the city, one of the pastors used to repeat this mantra. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. 
What is the main thing? Jesus Christ alone. If somebody in this church is claiming Jesus as their Lord, if they're doing 90% of the stuff right, let's not beat each other up over the remainder. Before we criticize somebody, before we point out their faults, let's look at and remind them of what is good. All the ways that they have tried to expand the kingdom, the ways that they have suffered for Christ. And let's start with that and not look at the problems, not look at external things that are secondary, that have nothing to do with a relationship with Jesus. This is Ephesians. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. I guess what I'm saying is, let's be gentle with each other. Let's make sure that we don't make peripheral things, small things, irrelevant things, the source of disagreement and argument and schism. Let's love one another. Let's share the gospel with each other. Let's remind ourselves of the gospel. Let's come to Christ together. And then we will be the Christian church. Let's pray right now. Gracious Father, we are sinful, lost, and without hope. And yet, in your great mercy, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to find us. Not only, Lord, to find us, but to pay the cost of all our sin. Not only that, Lord, but to give us a whole new life and identity as your children. Lord, what a miracle. Let the wonder of that never pale in our hearts. Help us to worship, lift up your worth, to pray, to celebrate, to sing, to encourage each other, to love one another as we love you. Lord, may your spirit be with us. May we be your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.